0: Greetings, everyone. We live in a world teeming with a vast assortment of living creatures. There exist a one celled microbe, such as bacteria and protozoa. There are invisibly small microscopic creatures that, nevertheless, under powerful magnification, show complex and intricate design. On the other end of the scale are huge blue. Whales, which may be a hundred feet long and weigh as much as 115 tons. The earth is home to birds that soar miles above sea level and also to creatures that live in the deepest parts of the ocean. There are plants which produce flowers of exquisite beauty and fragrance and others that look and smell like rotten meat. From space, earth looks like a shimmering blue and white jewel. The earth, unique among planets, is perfectly suited for life. Its uniqueness has been further highlighted by the Mariner, Viking, and Voyager spacecraft probes which have shown the other planets to be completely hostile and forbidding to life. Why is the Earth such a uniquely living planet? Why is there such a teeming abundance and variety of life on Earth? Is it an accident? Or is it planned and is there a purpose behind it? If there is a purpose, what is it? These are some of the questions that I want to explore with you today. It's important that you understand that in my estimation, there is no real evidence for the theory of evolution as espoused by Charles Darwin and others. In fact, the theory flies in the face of considerable evidence. I believe that those who believe in evolution do so in spite of, not because of the many physical evidences concerning the origin and history of life on the earth. In today's sermon we're going to examine some of the factors weighing against evolution and we're going to take a look at the testimony of God's word concerning the matter of creation. And I hope we'll come to a better understanding of some of the principles and purposes according to which God works, which are manifested both in his word and in the physical creation. First let's ask if the Bible deals directly with the concept of evolution itself. It may surprise you to know that it does, even though we shouldn't really be surprised because the concept of evolution is nothing new. It is, in fact, very ancient. Various cultures from early in history have viewed the details in different ways, but the basic concept of evolution is very old. For example, the Babylonians believe that the earth and sky developed spontaneously out of a primeval watery chaos. Although the Babylonians personified the earth and sky and other physical manifestations by giving them names and referring to them as gods, their system nevertheless is one which is often driven by a blind evolutionary force or you might say by fate. In their cosmology the Babylonians confuse certain elements of truth with much that was false. In some versions of their cosmology, man sprang from drops of blood from one of their gods. In other versions, man was fashioned by the gods, was fashioned by the gods from the blood of a condemned god. In the early cosmological mythologies, which were meant to express certain truths in poetic form and not necessarily to be taken literally, The gods are often ruled by fate or by chance, which is basically the driving force behind modern evolutionary theory. It should be understood that most ancient cultures, as does our culture today, had differing versions of how the earth and life and so forth came into being. Some involve various features of the universe being personified by gods. Other versions remind one very much of what one might read in modern texts, of what evolution calls science. Among the teachings of the Egyptians was the belief that the earth arose spontaneously as a primordial mound out of a watery chaos. Man evolved from worms which lived in the Nile River. Some versions of early Greek cosmology are very much like the Babylonian. Another version of early Greek cosmology makes no mention of gods but follows very closely the outline of modern evolutionary speculations. This system was summarized by Diodorus in the 5th century B.C. As the universe began, heaven and earth were mingled. According to this theory, eventually the fiery parts ran together, forming the sun and the rest of the heavenly bodies. Meanwhile, the slimy and muddy part, together with moisture congealed, forming the earth. The moisture collected to become... The seas, the more solid parts, became land. Then the story says that the sun's heat acted on the moisture and produced bubble-like membranes such as you see today in marshy areas. And in these membranes, life was generated. Later, when conditions had changed, the membranes could no longer generate the larger creatures, but they continued their existence by the union of the sexes. And here we see a very clear outline of evolutionary theory not all that much different from the modern theory. It's interesting that while the ancient pagans were teaching that men came from the blood of slain gods or evolved from worms in the Nile River, the biblical account is very lucid, straightforward, and truthful. The Bible says that God created the universe by the word of his power. John 1 beginning with verse 1. John 1 and verse 1: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, who is here called the Word. The Word, the spokesman, the one who spoke and it was created. We read in Psalm 33, verse 6, Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters out of the sea together as a heap he lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Jeremiah 10 and verse 12. Jeremiah 10 and verse 12 says, He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Revelation 4 and verse 12. You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In Hebrews 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, by the way, the world's here to be translated to ages, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Scripture implies that the creation exists or consists in God's Spirit or His power. The closer science has gotten to understanding the nature of matter and the material universe, the closer it gets to the picture presented thousands of years ago by God. Matter, we know today, is simply a manifestation of energy or power. The Bible says in a number of places that God stretched out the heavens, so we live in an expanding universe, as science has confirmed. Isaiah 45, verse 12. Isaiah 45, verse 12. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hand, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. So we see the evidence that the universe is expanding just as the Bible portrays it to be. But instead of life emerging spontaneously from mud, or from slime, the Bible says God made or created the different life forms. And By the way, that's essentially the modern theory is that life spontaneously emerged from mud or slime. Scripture says that God created the different life forms, and as we learn more about the nature and complexity of life, it becomes more and more apparent that life could have come into existence only by being created. By the time of Jesus Christ, the time that he had come in the flesh, the two most influential philosophies in the Roman world were Stoicism and Epicureanism. The Stoics believed that God was the spirit of the universe or that the universe itself was God. In other words, God is nature. Nature is God. God was in everything and was everything. Ideas of this kind are becoming increasingly popular among many educated people today, or people not necessarily educated as well. The Epicureans were atheists and completely materialistic. They believed that the universe is a result of an accidental concourse of atoms, not created and without purpose. There was no God, no supreme moral law, and no supreme judge. The world is governed by blind chance. Both Epicureanism and Stoicism held that man's destiny is controlled by fatalistic forces or chance over which he has little or no control. Lucretius was a Roman writer of the first century BC. He was an Epicurean. The Epicurean view of the origin and nature of the universe is summarized in the following statement, quote, Our world has been made by nature through the spontaneous and casual collision and the multifarious, accidental, random, and purposeless congregation and coalescence of atoms, end quote. Very similar to what many people believe today who reject the concept of a creator god according to that view all life is a result of an accidental coalescence of atoms this outlook is at the core of modern materialistic evolutionary thinking scripture addresses these ideas so scripture does have actually a great deal to say about the ideas of the evolutionary theory and what the scripture reveals is that god has a plan that the universe was created deliberately and with an intelligence behind it, a plan and a purpose, fate or chance is not in control. When Paul had gone to Athens, the Greek city of Athens, he began to speak to people in the marketplace about God and the purpose of life and so forth. And in Acts 17, beginning in verse 18, we read, Acts 17 and verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar to this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on the face of the earth. It has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might find him or grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So, God... A living personal being is in control, not blind chance. We read in Hebrews 11 and verse 3, Hebrews 11 and verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Again, this word worlds could be translated ages because we've had a series of pages from the time creation began. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, or beginning with verse 3, Second Peter 3 verse 3, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. This is a brief history of how the present world in this case cosmos cosmos the world as ordered and arranged came to be. And it declares that what the, the world as it previously existed, was destroyed by water. And all over the earth are sedimentary deposits that give testimony to the fact that previous world or worlds, plural, were destroyed by water. The Bible allows that life on our earth was destroyed by water multiple times. We see the testimony of that abundantly in the various strata of the earth's crust. The Bible says that those who reject God's sovereignty are fools. As we read in Psalm 53 and verse 1, Psalm 53 and verse 1, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand Who seek God, every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. God has concluded all mankind under sin until they are brought to repentance. But to deny God's existence, either by words or behavior, produces a lack of understanding and knowledge. That's why God says they are fools. And as this psalm indicates, produces evil. Men have rejected God. And that's why the world is so evil. Modern evolutionary theory is more sophisticated in certain respects than former theories. But at its core, it is much the same from a philosophical standpoint. So we might ask, is the modern theory of evolution true science, as many believe, or could it be rather Despite its wide acceptance among scientists and much of the general public, a form of false science based on vain speculation, which has served to undermine in the minds of many the concept of an all powerful creator God who has absolute authority. The Bible warns us to avoid as we read in second Timothy six and verse twenty second first Timothy six and verse twenty 1 Timothy six and verse twenty. Profane, where to avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Could evolution fit this description? Placing their trust in evolution is the correct explanation of origins. Many in our secular age have indeed rejected outright any notion of God. An important principle expressed in God's word is As we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, Thessalonians 5, verse 21, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. I would not have you believe anything merely because I say it. Look carefully at the evidence, both from the Bible and from nature itself. Weigh all sides of the issue. Seek God's guidance in prayer and then decide what you will believe. The fundamental question concerning origins is this. Is the universe, and especially life, a consequence of intelligent creation or blind chance? Is the universe, and especially life, a consequence of intelligent creation or blind chance? Propagandists for evolution try to push any consideration of an alternative to their speculations out of the arena of science, claiming that religion and science are in separate spheres of knowledge, and thus religion should have no bearing on scientific discussion. The Bible, however, has a great deal to say about origins, as we've seen, as do alternative theories, including Darwinian evolution and its offshoots. There is nothing wrong with seeing how the evidence stacks up when the speculations of evolutionists Are compared with what the Bible says about origins and the implications of its statements regarding origins. Dr. Niles Eldridge of the American Museum of Natural History is one of the leading proponents of what is referred to as punctuated equilibrium. Having seen the fossil record does not support the concept of gradual evolution as proposed by Darwin. Dr. Eldridge and others have proposed the idea that for long periods there were virtually no evolutionary changes, then very suddenly major changes occur which produce much different life forms. Dr. Eldridge is a confirmed evolutionist. He published a book in 1982 attacking those who believe in the concept of creation or the idea that a supreme being created life on the earth. The book's title is The Monkey Business, A Scientist Looks at Creationism. Some of what follows in my remarks is in reference to some of the major thrusts of his book, but also applies generally to the issue of whether life evolved of its own accord or was created by God. It's not unusual for propagandists for evolutionary theory to claim for themselves exclusive right to the mantle and authority of science and in effect attempt to silence opposition to evolutionary theory with ridicule. However, many creationists are very knowledgeable and accomplished scientists who have done an effective job of exposing the many weaknesses, fallacies, and contradictions in the theory of evolution. Generally, the criticisms of evolutionary assumptions by creationists are often right on the mark. Some proponents of creationism, however, but by no means all, fail to recognize that Genesis 1 is describing a reformation of the earth's surface and not, except in the very first verse, the original creation of the earth. This misunderstanding tends to weaken arguments for the creationist view in the eyes of those who are dubious of the idea that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Too many among the general public have been deluded into accepting evolution as a scientific theory, while concluding that belief in creation cannot be considered scientific because it is not testable in a laboratory. However, it should be obvious that evolution as a proposed series of events occurring in the remote past is not testable in a laboratory either. Thus, it is no more scientific in that sense than is creation. Since neither evolution nor creation can be duplicated in a laboratory experiment, we must rely on indirect evidence to test the validity of each. The authors of a book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, reassessing current theories published in 1984, are all professional scientists. They are Charles B. Thaxton, Walter L. Bradley, and Roger L. Olson. They refer to science that deals with non-recurring events as origin science. Evidence may be brought to bear by which theories of origin science can be judged plausible or implausible. But, But such theories cannot be falsified by direct observation as in the case of operation science. Chemical evolution is a speculative attempt to explain a singular event, the origin of life. But is it plausible or implausible? That is a question science can answer according to the authors. Many accomplished scientists have rejected the Darwinian theory of evolution and its offshoots, such as the so-called punctuated equilibrium theory, as implausible. I have a document called A Scientific Descent from Darwinism, signed by more than a thousand scientists. Their statement is as follows, quote, we are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged, End quote. Signatories include scholars and professors from a number of disciplines, including especially biology, biochemistry, chemistry, and so forth. The document is available on the internet at dissentfromdarwin.org This is the first page from the document and you'll see names and signatories are listed here on the first page. The rest of the 28 pages of this document are more names. An idea of the people who have signed this document. I'll just read a few. Philip Scale professor of chemistry, Pennsylvania State University. Lyle Jensen, professor, Department of Biological Structure, Department of Biochemistry, University of Washington. Michael Giertich, not sure how you pronounce that name, it's a Polish name. He's the professor Institute of Dendrology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Lev Belosov. Professor of Embryology, Moscow State University, Eugene Buff, PhD in Genetics, Institute of Developmental Biology, Russian Academy of Sciences. Emil Pelisek, Professor of Molecular Biology, Masaryk University in the Czech Republic. K Mosto Anu Oa Anu Oha. Again, I'm not sure how that name would be pronounced in the native language, which is an African language, is the Shell Professor of Geology and Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Nigeria. Denis Pesenko, Engelhart Institute of Molecular Biology, Russian Academy of Sciences. Israel Hanukoglu, Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and Chairman of the Department, College of Judea and Samaria, Israel. Alan Linton, Emeritus Professor of Bacteriology, University of Bristol, United Kingdom. Dean Kenyon, Emeritus Professor of Biology, San Francisco State University. Just to give you a sample of the caliber of the people who have signed this document. Both evolution and creation theory, if you want to call it that, suggest or predict what we might expect to find as we look into the evidence available. Dr. Eldridge, the author that I mentioned earlier of the book Monkey Business, asserts that evolution predicts, quote, one coherent pattern of similarity interlinking all forms of life. In other words, all living forms have certain things in common. The Bible predicts the same thing. As we read in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19, Ecclesiastes 3, and verse 19, what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so does the other. All are from the dust, and all return dust. We read in Acts 17, beginning in verse 24, God made the world or the cosmos. The world is structured and ordered and everything in it gives to all life breath and all things first corinthians 14 verse 33 first corinthians 14 verse 33 god is not the author of confusion but of peace or of harmony as it could be translated the creator is described in the bible as a being of law order and harmony and we would expect these qualities to be reflected in his creation the bible also goes further and explains the reasons for the chaos and confusion that at times prevail on the earth. If evolution predicts a hierarchical arrangement of similarities, so does the Bible. In fact, a hierarchical arrangement is implicit in the order of creation found in Genesis 1. What's interesting, though, is what we find when the predictions of evolution in the Bible record diverge. If Darwinism were true, as Darwin himself recognized the fossil record should show evidence of many intermediate forms in a gradual change from simple to complex. Now, the idea that there are simple life forms to begin with is itself a major flaw in the theory of Darwinian evolution, because there are no simple life forms. Any life form is exceedingly complex. The most primitive of life forms are exceedingly complex. There are no simple life forms. The Bible reveals that the principle God follows in creating living organisms is that each kind should reproduce its own kind. Thus, we would not expect to find transitional fossils among those buried if the Bible is an accurate record of what happened. After well over 100 years of searching the fossil record since the publication of The Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin's Origin of the Species, which prediction has proven accurate? First, what about the claim that simpler forms of life appear in the fossil record earlier than more advanced forms, as though there were some kind of progression, which is some individuals have advanced that idea following is a statement from a college biology text called the science of biology by paul b whites and in that book is a statement which is as follows quote it is a very curious circumstance that rocks older than about 500 million years are so barren of fossils whereas rocks younger than that not only are comparatively rich in them, but also include representatives of most major categories of organisms. Many hypotheses, he goes on to say, have been proposed to account for this sudden and simultaneous appearance of different fossil groups. Notice he says sudden and simultaneous appearance of different fossil groups, but to date A satisfactory explanation has not been found. And it should be further noted, this is not a quote, but it should be further noted that as more and more fossils have been uncovered, all major categories of animal and plant life have now been found in the earliest fossil-bearing rocks, the Cambrian, and that is a quote. Actually, a satisfactory explanation has been found, and it is found in the Bible which would lead one to look for a sudden and simultaneous appearance of diverse life-forms. Because that's how the Bible says things were done. It, it almost uh, literally screams creation. Evolution, however, has a real problem with fossil evidence since it does not show the gradual progression from simple to complex that the theory predicts. It is true that a small number of single-celled fossils have been found in rocks dated much older by evolutionists. However, the evidence does not at all suggest that these evolved into any higher or more complex organisms. In fact, what are believed by evolutionists to be the oldest known fossils found in rocks they claim are 3,800,000,000 years old, quote, are morphologically identical to modern yeasts. Are morphologically identical to modern yeasts. So that's not much help for evolution. What it tells us is that whenever yeast came into being, they pretty much stayed the same ever since then. They haven't evolved into something else. It's worth noting, too, that the rocks contain no trace. These rocks that are supposed to be the oldest contain no trace of the proposed prebiotic soup that supposedly led to the first organisms, which, if that prebiotic soup existed, should have left, according to a book titled Origin and Development of Living Systems, Origin and Development of Living Systems by Brooks and Shaw, if that prebiotic soup actually existed, it should have left, quote, either massive sediments, containing enormous amounts of the various nitrogenous organic compounds, or alternatively, in much metamorphosed sediments, we should find vast amounts of nitrogenous cokes. Neither one of these are found in the geological record. There is no record, no evidence whatsoever, that there was any prebiotic soup that the standard theory for the origin of life proposes. The lack of transitional forms in the fossil record, contrary to what Darwinism predicts, is in fact the very reason that punctuated equilibrium theory has recently become popular among evolutionists. The theory of evolution failed to accurately predict what would be found in the fossil record. As was stated in a Newsweek article on punctuated equilibrium, which is a warmed-over version of the 1940s hopeful monster theory, the article, Newsweek article published November 3rd, 1980, states, quote, Evidence from fossils now points overwhelmingly away from the classical Darwinism which most Americans learned in high school. Evidence from fossils now points overwhelmingly away from the classical Darwinism, which most Americans learned in high school." Essentially, what they're saying is that the evidence, the fossil evidence, does not support the Darwinian theory of evolution. And that's why many have been forced to conclude that a major overhaul of the theory is necessary to save the basic concept of a creation without a creator. Of course, the fossil record presents no such problem for one who understands and believes the Bible record. Since the principle revealed in the Bible is that kinds reproduce after their own kind, we would also expect to be found in the natural order a fixity of kinds or genetic stability over long periods of time, if the Bible is true. On the other hand, since evolution asserts that kinds evolve into other kinds, we would expect to find a lack of fixity of kinds or genetic stability. So which idea has proven accurate? Again, the evidence confirms the biblical record. There are numerous instances of kinds which have remained virtually unchanged over hundreds of millions of years according to the evolutionists' own dating methods and you need to take those dates with a huge grain of salt or maybe a whole truckload of salt. But uh, according to their dating methods, there are numerous instances of kinds which have remained virtually unchanged over hundreds of millions of years. In a book called Evolution from Space, by eminent scientists Fred Hoyle and Chandra were promising they give examples of fossil insects to show the fixity of, of kinds and uh, this is a quotation from that book. Quote, it is particularly remarkable that no forms with the wings at an intermediate stage of development have been found. These, this is fossil insects. Where fossil insects have wings at all, they are fully functional to serve the purposes of flight and often enough in ancient fossils, the wings are essentially identical to what can be found today. Quote. Another quotation Beetles have an ancient history going back about 250 million years ago. When complete specimens of beetles are found in the fossil record, they are a little different from present day forms. End quote. Another example quote, The earliest monotreme fossils come from the Australian Pleistocene, and they are quote, essentially the same as the living forms. End quote. In summarizing the evidence, the authors state, quote, the factual evidence is overwhelmingly confined to lines of creatures that do not change very much from generation to generation, as, for example, the various orders of insects. End quote. They go on to say wherever one would like evidence of major changes in linkages, the evidence is, quote, conspicuously missing from the fossil record. End quote. So, again, the prediction of evolution is proven false, that of the Bible, true. Creatures remain stable over long periods, and one kind does not change into another kind. The claim is made that radiometric dating has verified the positioning of the strata, the geologic strata, as previously worked out by geologists. However, radiometric dating is not reliable. Variables are involved which are subject to the researcher's own guesses and interpretations, which in turn will be influenced by his biases shaped by the general acceptance of the theory of evolution. And this is true of any dating method of geological strata, by the way. But even then, anomalous dates show up quite regularly which are usually discreetly ignored by evolutionists. For example, lavas from volcanoes of known geologic ages measured in centuries or less, have yielded radiometric ages varying from 100 million to 10 billion years. Petroleum, formed millions of years ago according to evolutionary theory, yields radiocarbon dates of 3,000 to 9,000 years. A number of coal samples supposed to have been formed millions of years ago have been radiocarbon dated 30,000 to 45,000 years old. The vast majority of fossils yield radiocarbon dates of less than 15,000 years, including dates for Homo sapiens, that's a scientific term for human beings, no older than 8,500 years, and an indicated age for Australopithecus, fossils Australopithecus is supposedly a precursor to human beings, an ape that turned into a human eventually. Radiometric dates of those fossils indicated age of about 12,500 years. Wood found in, quote, 100-million-year-old Cretaceous limestone has been dated by the radiocarbon method as 12,800 years old. Radiometric dating techniques cannot be used for most sedimentary rocks themselves, where most of the fossils are found. Fossils are typically dated by the rocks they are found in, and most rocks are dated by the fossils found in them, which is circular reasoning. There are many problems, discrepancies, anomalies, and contradictions in any age-dating method used by evolutionists. A science writer named Roger Lewin wrote a book about this some years ago called Bones of Contention, where he goes into detail about various fossils and the dates and the controversy concerning those dates. There are many phenomena which cannot be accounted for by the accepted methods of age dating, among them polystrape fossils such as trees that extend through supposed hundreds of millions of years worth of sediment. So you get a tree that extends through strata that are dated successively to be. Uh, amount to hundreds of millions of years' worth of deposits with a tree stuck right in the middle of them. How did that happen? Man-made artifacts have been found embedded in strata supposedly hundreds of millions of years old. How did a man-made object get into strata that was supposedly deposited hundreds of millions of years ago? Nobody thinks that human beings evolved hundreds of millions of years ago. Fossils found in strata, which supposedly predated the living forms by hundreds of millions of years, have been found. Throw in also the so-called living fossils, such as the ocopi, which was said to have become extinct in the Miocene epoch about 30 million years ago until one was captured in 1906 or the selecanth, a fish, supposedly extinct for 65 million years until they began to be caught off the coast of Africa some years ago. And there are others as well. Consider too that some part of every geologic period rests directly upon Precambrian deposits, supposedly the oldest uh, deposits that contain fossils of any kind. The example mentioned above of yeast fossils in the world's oldest rocks, supposedly, raises another question relating to rock dating methods. Yeasts are saprophytic fungi. What that means is that they feed on dead organic cells. So, how could the very first living forms have existed hundreds of millions or billions of years before other life forms when they depend on other life forms for their sustenance? Just a question you might consider. Another problem regarding such fossils, they're found in what is supposed to be the earliest known rocks, dated almost 4 billion years ago, which leaves little or no time for prebiotic evolution all dating methods for ancient phenomena are based on highly risky assumptions and must be considered speculative. As Professor Edward Devey, director of geochronotic laboratory at Yale University, wrote in an article for Scientific American in February 1952, geologic dating is, in his words, inspired guesswork. Inspired guesswork. Geological dating is inspired guesswork my question is who's doing the inspiring he also discusses in that same article many variables and unknowns that can affect the income of radiocarbon dating the truth is no human knows for sure the age of the rocks or the earth or the universe based on what the bible Reveals we know that the earth is older than 6,000 years. The Bible does not contend that it was created only 6,000 years ago, contrary to what some believe. But how much older than that is anybody's guess? As we said, it's just guesswork. Now, is there anything really to punctuated equilibrium or the idea of sudden evolutionary leaps, as in? the theory that we mentioned earlier. Norman Macbeth is a critic of evolution, although he is not a creationist, but he is also a critic of evolution, and he is author of a book titled Darwin Retired and Appeal to Reason. In an interview published in Towards Magazine in the spring of 1982, He characterized the concept of punctuated equilibrium as, in his words, a pipe dream, a council of despair, a wild hope. He stated that the very fact evolutionists have to invoke such a concept indicates, they are in a condition of bankruptcy. He says, As any fool can see, it is extremely difficult to document, in fact, impossible. It is not a scientific theory. It is only a statement that we are in such terrible shape that it must have been something on the order of a miracle. End quote. And I find it interesting that Dr. Macbeth has an intimate association with many of the scientists at the American Museum of Natural History and has even lectured before them. And he makes the point that, quote, among themselves, the scientists admit great weaknesses in evolutionary theories, including punctuated equilibrium, genetic drift, or the seawall right effect, but they do not reveal these to the public. And at the museum, that's what's going on." End quote. There's not a lot of space in the Bible devoted to the pre-Adamic world, but we are given a broad outline with certain key details of what God has done along with the principles and purposes according to which God works, and from these we should be able to determine within broad outlines what fits and what doesn't. Among those truths which are revealed that have a direct bearing on the discussion at hand are the following. Number one, God has from the beginning and throughout all the ages since had a specific purpose in mind for his creation. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes about the mystery of God's, quote, eternal purpose, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. That's in Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. We understand that that purpose involves God reproducing himself, or if you will, reproducing seed after the God kind. Two, God took a special interest in the creation of the earth and personally designed and made it. We read in Job 38, beginning in verse 5, Job 38, verse 5, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know, or who has stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations founded? Who laid its cornerstone? Proverbs 8 beginning with verse 22, we find it stated unequivocally that the earth is a result of God's planning or his wisdom. Proverbs 8 beginning with verse 22, this is wisdom metaphorically speaking. Proverbs 8 verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, and notice that he made a primal dust, of the world which is interesting verse 27 when he prepared the heavens I was there when he drew a circle in the face of the deep when he established the clouds above when he strengthened the fountains of the deep when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command when he marked up the foundations of the earth then I was beside him as a master craftsman I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. What this tells us is that there is an intelligence behind the creation of the universe and the world that we live on or in. In Isaiah 40 and verse 12, Isaiah 40 and verse 12, we are asked, who calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. That the earth's features, its size, shape, tilt, distance from the sun, chemical composition, and so forth, make it an ideal habitat for organic life, is, according to the Bible, no accident. It was all carefully planned, arranged, and brought into being by God. Third, God is the source and sustainer of life. We read in Acts 17, verse 24 Acts 17 verse 24 God who made the world and everything in it gives to all life breath and all things speaking of the living creatures of the earth Job spoke in Job 12 beginning in verse 9 the hand of the Lord has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing a number of scriptures tell us that God is the designer and sustainer of the living things of the earth In Psalm 104, beginning with verse 24, we read, The earth is full of your possessions, this great and wide sea, in which are innumerable, teeming things, living things, both small and great. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand. They are filled with good. You hide your face. They are troubled. You take away their breath. They die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Notice that here is a reference to mass destruction and then massive renewal. And that's the picture found in the book of Genesis of the pre-Adamic world and the renewal described in Genesis 1. And there may have been multiple mass extinctions of life in the history of the earth and then renewals of life through God's creative power. Yet another scripture reveals that all life on earth is utterly dependent on God. Job 34 beginning in verse 13. Who gave him charge over the earth or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together. Four, in its design, the physical creation reflects God's eternal purpose. Among the ways in which it does so is that God specifically designed and created organic life so that any individual of each kind or family is formed according to the peculiar characteristics inherent in the seed or life germ of its own kind. Various scientists have written in recent years about the information content, the makeup of living cells, and especially a set of instructions or genetic code, the genome that determines the peculiar characteristics of each individual life form, the information content, and the genomes of every living creature, including mice, flowers, humans, as is stated in the book Evolution from Space, are, quote, enormous, fantastic, quite out of all non-biological experience, end quote. Even the genomes of the most ancient life forms found in the earliest rocks have an information standard, according to the same source, that remains enormously high. As I said earlier, there are no simple organisms. After a thorough analysis of proposed early Earth models and simulations attempting to explain how life could have arisen spontaneously from non-living matter, the authors of the book The Mystery of Life's Origin conclude, quote, the early Earth conditions appear to offer no intrinsic means of supplying the configurational entropy work necessary to make the macromolecules of life. Quote. In essence, what the authors are saying is that the information content of organic living forms has no explanation apart from the intervention of an outside intelligence, to put it there. As Hoyle and Ramasingh put it, quote, for life to have originated on earth, it would be necessary that quite explicit instructions should have been provided for its assembly. End quote. And for each different life form, a different and unique set of instructions is needed, even though they share certain things in common. The authors go on to conclude that by far the most probable explanation for life on the earth is that life was assembled by an intelligence, their words. They conclude that this explanation is, quote, so obvious that one wonders why it is not widely accepted as being self-evident. The reasons are psychological rather than scientific. End quote. So who, what intelligence from the very beginning placed within each organic life form its own individual genetic code giving it its own peculiar characteristics. We read in First Corinthians chapter 15 beginning with thir- verse 38. Of the creatures that exist, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 38 God gives it a body that is its own peculiar form God gives it a body as he pleases or more correctly as he purposed God gives to each living form a body as he purposed and it goes on to say to each seed his or her his or its own body to each seed, his or its own body. In other words, it is God who has creator placed within each seed or germ of life the code that determines the physical characteristics of that particular creature, whether it be men, fish, birds, or whatever. And very interestingly, Paul is using this analogy of the seed containing in code the form of the creature that shall arise out of it to show how we, as the seed of God, shall bear the image of God in heaven, whose spiritual seed we are. As he goes on to write in First Corinthians 15 and verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We bear the image of Adam because... We are his descendants, one generation to the next, and God is placing in us a spiritual seed. And we are being formed in the image of Christ through the Spirit of God to be born into the kingdom of God, as sons in his kingdom. I've already discussed evidence that creatures remain true to form generation after generation, whether existing before or after Adam, allowing for limited variations within family groups. And I believe these biblical and scientific evidences rule out absolutely any consideration of the possibility of organic macroevolution either before or after Adam. In other words, that chance produces the living creatures that exist On the earth. I'm convinced that a genuine knowledge of and belief in what the Bible teaches about divine creation does not permit us to be neutral about organic evolution as conceived by Darwin, Huxley, Gould, and their ilk. It is a philosophy emanating from and propagating a lawless spirit, a hostile spirit. An attitude toward God is even a cursory review of their writings will clearly reveal From a historical point of view, evolution is an attack in the name of science against the very concept of God as creator. It is deliberately intended to undermine the testimony of scripture. The evidence of intelligent design in nature should be unmistakable to any rational person. In fact, I consider it to be one of the most powerful proofs of God's existence. And it is a proof that is taken for granted in the Bible itself, as the following scriptures demonstrate. Romans 1, beginning with verse 19. Romans 1, verse 19. What may may be known of God is manifest or revealed in or among them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power, Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And also Isaiah 40 and verse 25, To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things.